So it was a Baptist fellow who was a fairly recent convert, and he was studying his Bible diligently, and he, for some reason, decided that he could calculate the date that Jesus would return. So he started working. He worked on the prophecies of Daniel. Uh, he, he thought he knew the date uh, that the Jews were ordered to come back to Jerusalem. Uh, he interpreted the days of Daniel as being years, and he calculated all that together, and he decided that Jesus would return in March of 1844. And he attracted some followers. He published his findings, and some people began to read them and believe them, and they quit their jobs, and they abandoned their farms, and uh, they even gathered together in one spot to wait for Jesus to return that march. And Jesus did not return then, and many were disappointed. They, in fact, began to call it the great disappointment. Well, fast forward then to 1988, and uh, there was a fellow who was an engineer, and he wrote a book saying that there were 88 reasons why Jesus would return in 1988. I was here in 1988, and uh, I was a little suspicious that there would be exactly 88 reasons why Jesus would come in 88, so I was a little skeptical. Uh, but there were people, again, that believed it. And some quit their jobs, and some got rid of all their possessions, abandoned their responsibilities. And even in our church, it created a stir. There were people that were disturbed about that prophecy that he made, and, and the pastor actually had to preach a sermon on it. You know, if it would have been me, I would have called it 88 reasons. There's not 88 reasons. Jesus is returning in 88, and we're going to be here for a long time. Well, sadly, both these men and, and many others ignored Jesus' teaching about how we should wait for his return and how he would return because he specifically told us that no one would know the hour or the day. No one would know that time. And so when uh, this man that wrote the book was told that scripture, he said, well, if Jesus said no one knew the day and the hour, that doesn't mean I can't figure out the year and the month. You know, that, of course, was super bad hermeneutics. And Jesus was saying that no one knows the time that he will return. And in fact, it's not for us to know that. There are things that God knows, believe it or not, that you don't uh, and that he's not going to tell you. So there are things that God knows that he keeps to himself. So Jesus did say, and this is in Matthew 24, 44, where we're going to start today. He said, therefore, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So he told us we're not going to know when he comes. He's going to come unexpectedly, but we are to be ready no matter when that is. And then he told some parables to flesh that story out. You know, think of sermon illustrations, if you will, uh, that he made so that people could understand it. And uh, the first one of these starts in Matthew 24, 25, and uh, Jesus is going to contrast for us how a faithful servant acts versus how a wicked servant acts. So 
the passage says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him and an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus in this parable proposes a situation where the, the master of the household, the head of the family, has to go on a trip. And maybe it was a business trip. Uh, maybe he went to take care of a family matter somewhere, but he would be gone and he didn't know exactly when he would come back, uh, but his coming was delayed. It took longer than he thought. So maybe he, uh, maybe, you know, he said, I'd, I'll be gone 30 days, but it took three or four months to come. And, and, you know, there wasn't any way to communicate that if he was off in another town. Uh, he didn't have uh, the donkey phone to pick up while he rode his donkey and call and say he was on his way. You know, he didn't have Instagram to take a selfie. Uh, you know, you could see him standing by his donkey, taking the picture that he could send. He just showed up. He just was there one day unexpectedly and, uh, and had to be dealt with. So in the first proposition, the servant is both faithful and wise. And so he does all the things that the master told him to do. He's making sure the household is fed, that it's taken care of, that everything is running just as if the master was there. And that time period where he expected the master to return goes by and the master still has not returned. So he doesn't say to himself, well, I guess he's not coming back. He just keeps being faithful. He just keeps doing the job that the master gave him to do. The other servant that is proposed is the wicked servant. And so this servant begins to think the master's not coming back and I'm not going to be held accountable for this. So he begins to oppress his fellow servants. He even beats them and, and he begins to party. You know, he's, he's eating and drinking with drunkards, Jesus says. And so he's not taking his responsibilities seriously and in fact is using everything to his advantage. So Jesus says the faithful and wise servant who did what he was supposed to is going to be rewarded and the master in fact will give him a greater position of responsibility. And so notice it's not that he gets days off, you know, he doesn't get given an extra week of vacation, but he, he's given a greater field of responsibility there. But the wise servant instead is gonna be punished and and Jesus really emphasizes this. It's, it's brutal what he says will happen. The master will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And, and the hypocrites would be those that say they are Christians, but they don't do what Christ has told them to do. And they'll be weeping and the gnashing of teeth, same language that is used by Jesus later to talk about the torment of hell. And so this punishment will be very very hard to bear. So Jesus, who is obviously represented by the master here, has given his servants things to do 
while they wait for his return. And who are his servants? Us. Those who believe Christ, who are in his church, and especially those that have responsibilities in the church. So, for example, he tells us to make disciples of all nations. We call that the Great Commission uh, because Jesus made it the mission of the church. We're supposed to make disciples in all nations, in fact. And it took the disciples a while to get going on that. They, you know, they stayed in Jerusalem for a while, but then they began to go out to other cities. They began to go into other countries. And the mission of the church has sometimes receded and sometimes expanded, uh, but it is something that we look to do. That's what this video about Lottie Moon was about. Lottie Moon, a very diminutive little lady, uh, spent most of her life in China uh, bringing the gospel to the Chinese that didn't have it and ministering to them. She, she gave up food that she was able to buy with her allowance uh, until finally her health broke and, and she had to come home and, and passed away. But she believed in making disciples in all nations. And we give to that Lottie Moon offering uh, for those of us that are not going so we can fund those that go because it's very difficult to go and be a missionary if you also have to work and support yourself. And so you're always divided in time and, and in duties as opposed to when we can fund that and they can go and be missionaries full time. In addition to making disciples, we're also supposed to grow in holiness. So the object is not that you come and sign a card and then you sit in the pew and you're the same 50 years later as you are on that day. But instead, there should be a continual growth of holiness. We call this sanctification. And I, and I read one fellow that said that as you get more and more sanctified and more into holiness, you sin less, but you mourn your sin more. And that is because you have become more sensitive to the idea of displeasing the Lord or rebelling against the Lord, and you want to be faithful to him. We're also to increase in our knowledge of the Lord. Jesus said that those that abide in his word are his disciples. And so abide means more than hit and go, right? Abide means you dwell. You dwell in God's word. That's why we encourage you to read and study your Bible every day. You can't just come on Sunday and, and listen to the preacher as great as Pastor Drew is. You need more than that to abide in God's word. And so we read and we study and, and we have books that are so helpful. I remember being in college back in the dark ages and we, uh, you know, I had a real spiritual revival, if you will, and I was looking for books to read, and, and it was really hard to find them. And, of course, I was going to college in a small town. That didn't help probably, but still. Now there's this flood of Christian books, of theology, of devotion, all of these things. And so many, many helps for you to study and abide in God's Word. And we're to keep doing these things until he returns. So I recently was able to retire after about 44 years of doing the lawyer thing. And I woke up one morning and I didn't want to do the lawyer thing anymore. And I was very blessed to have a retirement program. So my, my, 
my goal and my dream is to not do any more lawyering in my whole life. No offense to the lawyers. I'm happy for you to do it. In fact, I'm thrilled for you to do it and not me. But we don't retire from the things the Lord told us to do. And, and sometimes a person will say, well, I've, I've earned it. I can now sit back and, and take, take it easy, take my ease. The scripture is pretty clear that we don't do that. In fact, there's a, a rich man uh, who the Lord says, you know, your soul will be required of you today because you wanted just to sit back and enjoy your wealth. We continue to serve, and, and we've had a history in this church of so many people that have done that. I, I've always been impressed by the older widows that we have had in this church as I got here when I was uh, 17 years old and, and the wisdom that they had and the sweet character that, that they had and, and all that you could learn from them because they had been in God's word and they grew and the Holy Spirit shaped them and they had become just saints of God, you know, there at the end of their lives. If we do these things, the lesson here is that God will bless us and reward us. And I believe that there are rewards in heaven. Certainly eternal life is a greater reward than anybody deserves, but I believe that God does reward us for our service. And the picture here is of one getting more responsibilities and and more to do because he has been faithful. But those that don't continue in faithfulness are showing themselves to be what Jesus says here are hypocrites. So a hypocrite is a person who portrays him or herself as one thing, but is really another. This sort of goes back to the old Greek tragedy plays where uh, they didn't really have costumes so much, but they had masks. And when they played a different character, they would hold up a mask to be somebody else. And there are many people in the pews that do that. They, they get up, they dress up, and they put on a mask. And they come and they sit. Uh, but that's it for them. And there's no real change in their life. And so these are the people, I think, that are referred to here uh, as this unfaithful servant. And he says really that those people will suffer God's wrath because they actually are not believers in Christ. And the, the, the thing he says here is really, like I say, brutal uh, about being cut into pieces and put with the hypocrites and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is trying to say there, the alternative to the blessing is terrible. The experience of God's wrath is terrible. It's not like just, well, I'll forgo the blessings. If you're not in Christ, you suffer God's wrath. I wish I was Scottish so I could say this to you like Alistair Begg, because wrath, it just sounds so much worse, doesn't it, than wrath. So that's my West Texas tongue, though. That's what you get. But Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could fill out a card and go sit in a pew. Uh, and live for ourselves. We're supposed to be about his business. The Bible tells us to glorify God in all things that we do, and we're supposed to be working to bring others into the kingdom. Now, the second parable that he tells here really talks about our need to be prepared for God's return, and this is usually called the parable of the ten virgins, and this is in Matthew 
25, 1 through 3. And this says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oils with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since it will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were gone, and while they were going, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So this parable revolves around a wedding. We don't really know much about first century wedding uh, procedures and what all they did. I, I'm assuming it's probably not like Fiddler on the Roof, which is kind of what everybody thinks about. But that was way later. But evidently, the bridegroom would come and get the bride at her house. And so the picture of these virgins, these would be young unmarried girls, is they're going to have these lamps, or they could be torches, either one, uh, that burn off of oil. And they're going to join this procession. So the bridegroom is going to come, and maybe with his family. And then these 10 girls with these lighted lamps will go with him. And this will be a real spectacle in a small town or village, right? They didn't have a lot of social life. This is a big event. So people will come out and, and stand out in front of their homes and watch. And here comes this procession and the groom is dressed in his best clothes and maybe his family with him. And, and, and then here are these 10 girls dressed in their best with these lamps glowing and you know, there's no street lights, there's no porch lights. This is the only light, and it lights up the procession as they go. And then they pick up the bride, and they go to wherever the wedding feast will be, and they go in and have this great party that might last for days. You had to, I guess, have money if, you're, if your daughter got married back then. So they had these uh, flasks, or the, the NIV says jars, but they were holders of oil. So the wise versions, versions bring the lamp and they bring some extra oil just in case they need more than they have already put in the lamp. The foolish girls do not do that. So again, you have this sense of delay. The, uh, as the master was delayed, now the groom is delayed. He doesn't show up at the same time. And, and you know, they weren't also as... Oh, compulsive, if you will, or obsessed with time as those of us of Anglo-Saxon heritage are. You know, we were raised, or at least I was raised, that, you know, you went everywhere 15 minutes early. And if you went on time, you were late. You ever hear that one? And, uh, and, and if we go somewhere to meet someone and they're late, we fret about it. 
it wasn't really that way with them. Uh, I, you know, I went to Venezuela on a mission trip once and we told everybody we started the Bible school at nine o'clock and at nine o'clock, only those of us from North America were there. And then at 10 o'clock, some people began to come in and 11 some more and at noon and we'd run out of supplies and, and they would be upset with us that we didn't have something for them. And we would say, but it started at nine and they would look at us like, what's your point? So it's, it's this way in this Jewish culture as well. And so the big thing is that the groom gets ready and everything is ready. The feast is ready. And so he'll come when he's ready, not because it's nine o'clock. And so in this case, the groom is, is, is really late and the uh, girls fall asleep because it's late. And there's no criticism of them here for falling asleep. That's not the point at all. So they're sleeping, but then someone, whoever is the lookout, sees the groom coming. And so he lets out this cry that, you know, here's the groom. Everybody get ready to go out and meet him. And so the girls get up and, and their lamps have, have probably gone out at that time. So they, it says trim them. That would mean to get it burning again. And the foolish versions look and say, oops, I don't have enough oil to, to keep this burning while all this is going on. So y'all give us some of your oil. The wise girls say, well, we can't do that because we don't have enough. We have enough to keep ours burning, but we don't have enough yours. So you're going to have to go and buy some. And so the foolish girls take off and they go to the vendors to buy some oil. And while they are gone, the groom comes. The five wise ones go with the groom with the lit lamps that stay lit for the whole procession. And they go to the place where the marriage feast is and they go in and the door is shut. The opportunity to come in is now closed and over with. So the girls that had gone to buy oil come back and they're surprised. The groom is gone. They go to the feasting place and the door is shut. And so they're missing out on the party there, the festivities. And so they begin to knock on the door and they say, you know, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. You know, let us in. And the groom makes a really uh, difficult statement here. And he starts it with the word truly. So in the New Testament, whenever Jesus speaks, and he starts with the word truly, and then sometimes even says, truly, truly. He's signaling you that this is a profound statement and one you need to pay attention to. And his statement here is, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So they're not going to be allowed in. Now, obviously, the groom knows who they are but he has disassociated himself from them. You are not part of me. We don't have a relationship. And in that sense, I do not know you. And so they're excluded. They're not in the hall with the lights and the festivities. They are left out in the dark uh, and they're not with the bridegroom. Now, obviously the bridegroom in this story is the Lord Jesus. 
and we see the time of his coming is delayed and no one knows when he is going to come. But yet when it does come, it's sudden and it's unexpected. That would mean that it's not going to come on the day that you calculated it. And I guess the way that works is if you calculate the date, it's not going to happen. But that date is actually in the mind of God, the Father, and he knows when that's going to be. You might remember Galatians says that in the fullness of time, Jesus came the first time. That means when it is the right time in God's will to happen. And so, again, when Jesus comes for that second advent, his second coming, will also be in the fullness of time according to God the Father. So these five wise virgins are those that believe in Jesus and have stayed prepared for his return. The foolish virgins are those that have not committed themselves to Christ and are not allowed into his kingdom when Christ comes. And Jesus will say to those that have not committed their lives to him, I do not know you. And the door to his kingdom will be shut. And we know that because this parable actually starts with the words, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So he's been talking about his return through Matthew 24. And then he gives these parables to describe how this is going to be. And this very startling parable with this traumatic ending is that those who have not come to him by the time he returns are not going to be with him in his kingdom in heaven in the new heavens and earth for eternity they're going to be out into the darkness we get to verse 13 and jesus summarizes the message of these parables and he says truly i say to you i do not know you And then he says, watch, therefore, and this is a word to all of us, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And so if we don't know when, we need to be on watch all the time, right? We don't give up. We continue to watch. So we don't know the time of his return, but we do know that his return is certain. When he very first ascended to heaven, the disciples are gathered with him on the mount. And as he disappears into the clouds, as he ascends to heaven, an angel appears to the disciples and says, why are you looking up there? This Jesus will return the same way that he left. He is going to appear in the clouds when he comes to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth and take them with him into eternity. So his return is certain, but the time of his return is not. We don't know it. It could happen today at lunch. Hopefully, you know, between the meal and the check, right? But it could be anytime, anytime. It could be now. It could be during this service. It could be anytime. Or it could be 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now. We really, we just don't know. And and there's always someone that has a, you know, when 1,000 A.D. came, that, that would be a great date for Christ to return. But, you know, no. So, again, that time is in the mind of the Lord. But delay does not mean cancellation, and it doesn't mean a relief from the duties. Uh, it just means that the time 
is for us to prepare, and when he comes, the time for preparation is over. Now, it's the same way with death. I mean, I certainly would prefer, and I guess we all would be, to be taken to heaven with Jesus and not go through that whole death burial thing, right? Uh, like they say, it's better to be seen than viewed, right? And so we would, we would like to do that, and I would love to do that. I think that'd be great fun. It'd be very inspiring to do, uh, but we may not be given that privilege. And if not, death, physical death awaits us. And the same with Jesus is coming at the time of death, Decision time, preparation time is over. There's no second chance that occurs after death. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's the next event. And so we have a time to come to Christ, and then after that time, we do not have that opportunity. So we get to the end of the year, and... Most of us uh, give resolutions. We make resolutions for the new year that last about six weeks, right? And so, you know, if, if you have a gym membership, the first six weeks of the year are just terrible for going to the gym because there's all these out of shape people taking up your machine, right? You can't get on yes, you know what I'm saying. Um, but maybe rather this year than make necessarily resolutions to lose weight or to run 10 miles or all that stuff, focus on spiritual life and evaluate what was this year like for me? So did I work to bring people into the kingdom? Did I grow in holiness? Did I abide in God's word? We all kind of hit slumps sometimes, don't we? Well, the end of the year is a good time to evaluate that and say, you know, in light of Christ's coming and to be prepared, I'm going to repent of the things I didn't do that I was supposed to do. And I am now going to recommit to doing these things that Christ told me to do and do them until he comes back. And that's what Christians do. That's what believers should do. However, if, if you're one that has not placed your faith in Christ uh, and you fall into this category of the wicked servant or the uh, unprepared uh, virgins, you sort of have a different situation to look at. The fact is, is that every human being is a sinner. Uh, you know, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all know that the wages of sin is death. And, and God doesn't have a balance. I hear people tell me sometimes, oh, I think the good I did outweighed the bad that I did. God doesn't do that. It's if you broke one part of God's law, you broke it all. And you're responsible for that. You're accountable to him for that. Now, Jesus was sent by God to bear that penalty. And so he came and he lived a sinless life, so he didn't deserve death, but he died in our place. And for all those that have believed in him, our sins have been placed on him and are taken care of, and God sees us as righteous, and he gives us eternal life to live with him. But if we have not come to Christ, we are still under God's wrath, and we are still ready and susceptible 
to suffer the penalties that would, would be. So today, while you have heard this gospel message, I would implore you to think about your state. Have you placed your life with Christ? Have you believed in him? Have you committed your life to him? And if not, I'd beg you to come today and to do that, enter into the marriage feast while the door is open and be saved.